Hello and welcome to the Stoicism Philosophy as a Way of Life podcast. My name is Donald Robertson and today's guest is Ryan A. Bush, author of Designing the Mind, The Principles of Psychitecture and the forthcoming Become Who You Are, A New Theory of Self-Esteem, Human Greatness and the Opposite of Depression. Hello Ryan and welcome to the show. How are you? Hey, Donald. I'm doing great and uh, really excited to be here. Cool. I'm in Montreal today. Well, like, whereabouts are you? Uh, I'm in North Carolina. I live in a small mountain town outside of Asheville. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty nice this time of year. Awesome. Well, let's jump right in uh, by discussing your book, like Designing the Mind. What is designing the mind? What do you mean by that? And what is psychitecture? Am I right in thinking psychitecture, basically, you, you're using that term to mean designing the mind? Are these synonymous terms? Essentially, yeah. So designing the mind is the name of, yes, my first book and also the name of my organization. And uh, psychitecture is kind of the central practice uh, that it's all centered around. And so um, with designing the mind, I'm really... Uh, essentially studying a lot of different sources like Stoicism and Buddhism and Taoism, uh, but then modern psychology and, and cognitive therapy and that kind of thing as well, and and generally putting them all into a very modern systems framework. Um, and so I'm writing books and uh, creating products and programs and, uh, and a membership kind of community as well, all centered around this practice of psychotecture. And so Psychotecture is a, a word that I coined in the first book, and uh, it's essentially the act of, yes, designing your own mind. Um, and in, a bro- in the broadest sense, it's a very old practice that I'm giving a new word to um, that we didn't really have a, a very good word for. But certainly the Stoics were engaged in, you know, psychotecture as I sort of frame it, and we've been doing it for as long as we've been human. But in a kind of a narrower sense, my version of psychotecture is a much more uh, sort of analytical, um, sort of almost uh, engineering-oriented approach to the mind. So it's very much looking to find creative solutions for mental challenges, for uh, cognitive biases, for negative emotions, for bad habits, right? And so it sort of applies this unifying framework to all this and explores different methods for reprogramming your mind in a sense. It's a cool word. Everyone likes a good neologism, right? Like it's a, it's, it's interesting. Um, did you know that Socrates reputedly used to be a sculptor? I actually did not know that, um, but there's a, there are some interesting sculpting threads in all this, so uh, that's uh, cool to learn. So some people believe that he quit being a sculptor. He abandoned... Uh, we're told he was removed from the sculptor's workshop by his friend Crito, who was uh, a wealthy agriculturalist, a rich friend, a uh, childhood friend of Socrates, and he gave up sculpting stone and began sculpting his own character. I think is the hmm. it reminded me of that when I was reading about your concept. In a sense, he was sculpting or designing his own character. So yeah, that leads I, on. I, I was going to ask I you. Love how, it. I was sorry. Go sorry. ahead. No, I was just going to ask you how how did your background in design contribute to your your approach to self improvement? 
Yeah. So going back a little bit here, I um, I actually originally went into computer science as a kind of college major, and I ended up uh, loving and relating to a lot of that, but finding it was a little bit on the overly analytical and not creative enough side, just given how my mind works. And so I discovered uh, product design or industrial design shortly after that and kind of switched over. Um, and and that uh, through product design, I, I've designed everything from physical products, software interfaces, uh, buildings now, like I've, I'll pretty much design anything I can uh, get my hands on. And so uh, that kind of uh, mentality, particularly combined with the little bit of software background that I got too, uh, really fed into this, th- this uh, creative problem solving sort of approach to working through mental challenges. Um, and and the software side too, I, I mean, it, it essentially led to this whole uh, sort of metaphorical framework that unifies all this uh, centered around psychological algorithms. I started seeing more and more of these computational patterns when I studied the mind and uh, looking at how our cognitions are sort of like, you know, if-then algorithms that result in different emotions. If you experience this type of thought, you have this type of emotion. Um, and then, you know, emotions do the same with behaviors, and then it all feeds back into your beliefs. And so um, it, it increasingly built out this framework for understanding the mind as a, you know, very complex algorithm that was originally programmed, of course, by natural selection, uh, though not necessarily for our benefit. And so it's kind of up to us to commandeer the keyboard of our own uh, programming and learn the leverage points in those algorithms for actually jumping in and making changes. Well, let's jump in. Actually, one of my favorite questions to ask people uh, in relation to self-improvement is from a slightly different perspective. Like often we ask what, you know, people should be doing, but I'd like to ask you, what's the main thing that you think people should quit doing? Like Mm -hmm. that they should learn to stop doing? Is there something that, in other words, that you think people do that's problematic from your perspective that they should change? Yeah, certainly on the broadest level, I want to just say unnecessary suffering because I believe a huge portion of the suffering in the world is kind of optional in the sense that if we had the right psychological tools, uh, we would be able to opt out of it. And, you know, there's a lot of focus on the, uh, you know, pain and discomfort in the world that's uh, hard to avoid and that can't be done without, you know, dramatically changing conditions in the world. I think there's not enough attention paid to the the means we have within our own minds if we have the right tools to actually opt out of a lot of that suffering. And I, I don't think suffering necessarily uh necessarily is a good thing, like some people have argued. It, it doesn't necessarily bring about, um, you know, the wrong kind of suffering doesn't cultivate character. It's just, uh, you know, a waste, basically. Um, but, you know, zooming in a little from that, I think there are a number of particularly pernicious cyclical patterns in our minds. Um, I'm thinking about rumination and worry, right? These are essentially where your brain just repeats the same line of thought over and over, causes repeated suffering, and you don't actually get anywhere through it. So with rumination, you know, very often, um, you know, I think everyone experiences this to some degree, but particularly in those who are depressed, they are constantly going over their own inadequacies in their minds, not really getting anywhere, but sometimes spending hours in this spiral of, 
you know, negative self-criticism, um, just completely dwelling on how, you know, incompetent and unlovable they think they are. And it's possible to learn to sort of short circuit these processes. Um, and then another, you know, the distinct but very similar mental process of worry is basically a lot of people think they're making progress and they're planning and they're solving problems when they're worrying. But actually, worry is almost by definition just a useless repetition of the same thoughts over and over. Um, and you can very much learn to short circuit this as well. I mean, uh, when you study anxiety treatment and, and worry in particular, you find that uh, what what worriers are doing is very much the same as what people with comp comp uh, obsessive compulsive disorder are doing when they're you know constantly you know washing their hands over and over or checking the sink over and over. Uh, you're essentially having this worry thought pop into your head, uh, and it's you're then uh, uncomfortable, and so you think a comforting thought to soothe yourself, and that's sort of the uh, the compulsion at the other end. And then that feeds back into the same worry and you just go on and on with the cycle. And so I've found from studying this, that one of the best ways to break this cycle is to actually um, embrace your worry thoughts, actually feel free to consider the worst case scenario instead of instantly reassuring yourself every time. Uh, and really uh, even schedule appointments with your worries I've found is really effective. You almost want to invite the worst case scenario instead of just running from it every time it pops into your head. And there are so many methods like this for actually breaking these problematic patterns in our minds. These are the two bad boys of <laughs> modern cognitive psychopathology, like rumination and, and worry. So absolutely, most modern cognitive behavioral therapists would agree that these are two of the main processes that we need to target and help people to to overcome i wonder then uh if we go back let's go back in time uh even further beyond cognitive therapy and things like that to your philosophical influences and i wondered how do you see the the influence of philosophy on your work yeah so we talked about my background in design, but actually my, my background in philosophy and psychology go a lot deeper and further back. Um, remember when I was still in school, maybe 15 years old, I was uh, sort of uh, coming to view my mind as this laboratory where I could make changes and, um, you know, tweak things around. And I, I was particularly fascinated by the process of having something apparently negative happen to me. And doing something in my mind, I couldn't quite explain what I was doing at the time, but essentially uh, breaking uh, off that negative emotion that's supposed to come from it. And I almost got a kind of thrill out of, you know, having negative things happen to me and being like, oh, I can turn this into a positive emotion. I can twist this around in my head. Uh, and I had gradually built up these ideas in, uh, in this space, and I would sort of pace around my room and lecture an imaginary audience with it. And then at some point I came across Stoicism. I think I read uh, The Obstacle is the Way, Ryan Holiday initially. Um, and, you know, my reaction as I went deeper into it was like, these guys stole my ideas. Like I was going to I was going to write a book about this and they they took it. Um, and then I realized that pretty much everything I was going to share had been more comprehensively and elegantly uh, broken down 2000 years before me. So I was a little late, but. Um, that kind of shifted my focus from uh, trying to 
you know, provide these completely original ideas to finding ideas in all these different philosophies and trying to integrate them into one common kind of uh, set of ideas. And so Stoicism has been my single greatest philosophical inspiration ever since I discovered it. I mean, it's the continual, like, if you know that the Simpsons did it joke, it's like the Stoics did it already. Every time I try to come up with a new tool for the mind, you can find uh, those ideas in Stoicism. And so it's it's been such a powerful tool for me just personally, but also uh, in terms of my work, there's there's no better source than the those original Stoic works. I think the Stoics share that attitude as well. Uh, they saw what they were doing as a kind of perennial philosophy, to borrow the, the phrase that Aldous Huxley uses. So the Stoics thought, look, if we're onto something here, if what we're saying is right, if it's true, we shouldn't be surprised if other people have already said bits of it. And they they didn't have the opportunity to go and look at Chinese or Indian literature, but they looked at other philosophical movements and they looked at the writings of uh, poets, uh, tragedians, and found snippets of wisdom that reflected what they were saying in other branches of ancient literature in much the same way that, that you're doing. You're looking at these philosophies and saying there's bits of CBT that agree with conclusions I'd already arrived at and bits of Stoicism. But I wonder what your other philosophical influences were if we cast the net a little bit more widely. In addition to the Stoics, where, where else have you found inspiration? Yeah, and good point on the Stoics mentality. I know in reading Seneca, he's constantly uh, referencing Epicurus and then kind of defending his referencing Epicurus and saying, no, if if it's true, then it makes sense he would have arrived at some of the same conclusions. So it makes sense. Um, Some of my other major influences are, yes, Epicureanism and other, you know, Hellenistic schools, uh, but also Buddhism and Taoism um, in the kind of ancient East and West. But then moving forward, um, I've, I've particularly in this new book really drawn from the work of Friedrich Nietzsche and uh, Abraham Maslow is another amazing one. I think a lot of people just think of him as the hierarchy of needs triangle guy. But if you actually dig into his work, there's this brilliant vision of psychological health. Um, and then, yeah, moving forward from that, we've got, you know, uh, the work of positive psychologists like Martin Seligman, uh, of course, the pioneering work of Aaron Beck and cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, and then even more recently, evolutionary psychology and a lot of these ideas about why our minds are actually wired the way they are by default. Let's go back to the Stoics for a second. You, know, you talked about how they uh, were such a, an influence on you. What, what do you think are the main bits of Stoicism, the main concepts or practices that you, you've assimilated from the Stoics? Yeah. So originally when I came across the Stoics, I think like a lot of people, I was uh, really uh, affected by some of these easy to understand powerful ideas like, um, you know, Amor Fati, the sort of embrace of one's fate and whatever happens to you. Um, you know, the uh, the idea of cognitive mediation that I think is fundamentally true, at least that's the term I tend to use for it, that our emotions don't respond to events themselves, but uh, they they respond to our interpretations and thoughts about events. Um, you know, ideas like this are are really powerful. You know, the dichotomy of control, of course. Um, the idea that we uh, we should focus on what we can control and not what we can't, and we can relinquish a lot of pain by not worrying about the things that are out of our control. It's These are favorite, kind of it's my favorite dichotomy. 
Yeah, yeah, it's one of mine too. But um, <laughs> but actually, what one of the things I uh, I love about your work is that you focus on this crucial dichotomy between virtue and uh, sort of the indifferent circumstances that face us. And when I initially found Stoicism, um, you know, this this idea sort of just sounded preachy to me. It's like, yeah, virtue is important. That's great. Um, but the more I, I dug into it, the more I came to think that this is the most important concept in this whole philosophy, uh, because I think it's actually very true in a, you know, a scientifically empirical kind of way that our emotions really don't respond to the things we go about our lives assuming they do. We, we really don't, um, you know, get an increase in the deepest kind of happiness when, when ostensibly good things happen to us or a decrease when ostensibly negative things happen to us. And this is really the, the core dichotomy that I explore and try to actually provide modern research for in the, in the new book. Um, but I mean, I could, I could go on because I actually very recently uh, went back through meditations, this time uh, basically with the goal of codifying it into a system of psychological technologies that, um, that Marcus Aurelius is employing. And so I basically highlighted every word in the book uh, with a different colors, like 20 different colors based on which tool he was doing. And I kind of created a coding system. Uh, certainly, I, I realized that there's more than just these disparate ideas in Stoicism, and they're fundamentally connected by a common philosophy. But mm -hmm. I also think uh, if we created a system or kind of a vocabulary uh, for organizing all these tools, it would be much easier to teach them to people even from an, an early age. Yeah. Uh, so so uh, stoicism just keeps giving as far as I'm concerned. Giving things names is important. Um, the, you know, most of the techniques that we find in the stoic and other uh, ancient philosophy literature, we don't know what they're called. Like they, we see Marcus using these techniques, but he doesn't say, I'm about to do the such and such technique. Right. <laughs> so it, we, we don't have names for a lot of them. Sometimes, like, for example, Pierre Hadot coined the term, the view from above, to describe one of the, the most common ones, but we don't know what uh, Marcus called it. I think you talked a bit about cognitive mediation. The cognitive revolution in psychology and in psychotherapy is a big deal. Like, it's a revolution. And I really believe, like you're saying, sometimes the simple ideas that are the most important, the foundational ideas, often people don't realize how significant they actually are. Um, the internet is awash with people giving self-improvement or self-help advice, and a great deal of it is completely ignorant of the... Or worse, counterproductive in some yeah. cases. And often the way that it is, is that it, or it flies in the face of modern research, is that it doesn't really understand the role of cognition in mediating emotion. And if you don't understand what an emotion is and how it functions, then your strategies for coping with it are going to be misinformed fundamentally. So a lot of self-improvement advice starts from a kind of false premise in a way, about the nature of emotion. And the Stoics introduced this idea. They really actually got it from Socrates, who states it earlier. But uh, it's, it's essential to cognitive therapy. So I'm, I'm glad that it's found a central place in your self-improvement advice as well. 
Um, I guess that leads on to my next question, which is what are the ways in which you feel your work draws on cognitive behavioral psychotherapy? Yeah, so I I discovered CBT. um, I I think I was vaguely familiar with it, but it was really when I read your book, The Philosophy of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, that it really clicked for me. Um, One, the the connection between stoicism and CBT, of course, because I I really didn't know that it had its roots uh, fundamentally in stoicism, but also uh, a lot of the core ideas of of the philosophy of the uh, the therapeutic practice were introduced to me through that book, and so I'm just uh, extremely grateful to have found your work. Um, but but uh, CBT has been a, a foundational influence in terms of therapeutic practice. I mean, it it is uh, not only is it does it seem to be the most empirically effective of all these therapeutic treatments. It's also the most satisfying for someone like me who is very much uh, in- interested in understanding things in an r- analytical, rational kind of way. Um, you know, like you were kind of pointing out before this cognitive revolution, most therapeutic practices centered around these invisible kind of unconscious forces that we really couldn't observe and actually develop much awareness of. And we, they sort of required this trained practitioner to pull them out of our minds. Uh, well, with CBT, we basically... Uh, came across this idea that no, you you can observe exactly what's causing your psychological ailments, right? And and we can see that people with different psychological ailments have different types of thoughts going through their heads. And and Aaron Beck does a great job of breaking down. Look, these are the types of thoughts that you have when you're anxious and that contribute to anxiety. These are the types of thoughts you have when you're depressed, right? And, and this, uh, this idea, I think, is so important for people to understand. Like you say, it's neglected by most of self-help. And so it's been integral in creating the, the framework and the diagrams I create in the book. I mean, basically, yeah. um, I, I show the input uh, resulting in cognition. And then, well, one, you, you can develop a distortion in that link. So your, your inputs can be biased. And as a result, your cognitions will, will not be accurate. And then that will determine the kind of emotion you have from there. And so um, I think that that core idea of understanding how our thoughts lead to our emotions and and how different types of distorted thoughts result mm-hmm. in different negative emotions, it's crucial. I also um, have made very heavy use of the practice of uh, thought logging and, and cognitive restructuring yeah. in my work. It's, it's one of the number one recommendations for anyone uh, who is experiencing negative emotions, who's trying to get better at uh, becoming aware of what's going on in their own mind, uh, is just actually logging what thought you had just before you uh, experienced a negative mood or emotion. Mm-hmm. And um, and then building on that by learning the different types of distortions that can be present in our thoughts, uh, replacing them with more accurate, balanced beliefs, right? Um, this practice is... is something that should be taught in school at a very early age, I think. And it's just not, you basically don't learn it unless you have such an uh, extreme mental illness that it causes you to go into therapy. Most people don't do that. Yeah, this is the the, the standard. We should be teaching this stuff to kids. Like, <laughs> you know, you know you're know, you onto something when you can inevitably add up, end up feeling, we should be, why aren't we teaching this to kids? I, and I think most cognitive behavioral therapists feel that way. We have large volumes of research now. There's a great deal of uncertainty still in the field of psychotherapy, but there's a lot of stuff that we know 
pretty robustly, and yet we don't teach it uh, to kids. You were describing a moment ago something which is an aspect of cognitive therapy that people seldom mention, um, particularly from the, in the self-improvement field. People are usually more interested in the techniques and so on. But the first thing a cognitive therapist normally does with a client, one of the first things, they assess them. And in that assessment, they get a felt-tip pen out, Ryan, and they get a flip chart, and they start drawing on it, and they draw little circles and squares and arrows connecting them, right? And they do what we usually call a cognitive behavioral conceptualization of the client's problem. So we're drawing a kind of map of what's going on with their emotions, the thinking, and the behavior. So all cognitive behavioral therapists do something that's kind of like design with the mm-hmm. clients. We take a complicated, what we're trying to do is take all this really complicated scientific research and translate it into a form that any random individual walking through the consulting room door would be able to immediately recognize and understand. We're trying to simplify information so that the client finds it more relatable. And we do that usually by drawing diagrams and various shapes and forms. And that I wanted to talk to you about that because of your approach to design and the role that it plays in your self-improvement because it's normally overlooked. You don't even see those diagrams often <laughs> when people are talking about self-improvement or self-help. But in CBT, we would say this is the absolute foundation of the building. If the client understands how this arrow connects to that arrow to connect to that arrow, you know, a problem well-defined, as the saying goes, is halfway solved. Like you're on, you're on a roll if the client can go, I get it now. I see mm-hmm. how my, my problem functions. So I wonder if you could say a bit about what you think the value of diagrams is in, in self-improvement. Um, and you've, you've, you've looked at Beck, and so you've probably seen some of these conceptualization diagrams and books on CBT as well. Um, I wonder if you could say a little bit about, you know, how drawing pictures can play a role in self-improvement <laughs> psychology. Absolutely. Yeah, there are over 100 diagrams in my first book. So I definitely have not neglected the visual space. And and even that, I think, could be enhanced with things like animation and video and all that. But, you know, essentially, um, the, the way that most books present these ideas, and, and not only just a written, but a purely linear form, uh, it's really limiting because everyone has a slightly different set of mental struggles. And so if you can't map them out in a visual way, you're not going to get anything like personalized, interactive treatment for people. Um, Once you start actually creating these diagrams, you get to where you can diagram what you're struggling with in the same way that you're taught to diagram sentences in schools, which would be a great target for something to replace uh, CBT treatment with. We could just get rid of diagramming sentences altogether. But um, I I absolutely think you, you need to understand concepts on a deeper level than just the verbal written form. I I think cognition uh, basically has its roots in, you know, spatial orientation. And so that's why it's hard to even say a single sentence that doesn't have spatial metaphors buried in it, because we, we really see the world visually. And some people have this belief that they're not visual thinkers. um, But I think that's, uh, 
it's not accurate at all. I think we're all visual thinkers yeah. and we, we need diagrams to really instill these ideas. Um, and, and, uh, particularly if we can integrate a lot of different ideas into a, a visual vocabulary, that's really the, the core, the, the new thing that I try to bring in my first book. You know, it's a lot of ideas that if you've been in this space for a while, if you're familiar with Stoicism and Buddhism, all this, these specific ideas won't be that new to you. But having one visual organization for it, I think is what's needed. And, and I think that will be new to most people. Uh, I absolutely have drawn from CBT in that regard. Uh, the CBT triangle uh, between cognition and emotion and, and behavior is um, you know, pretty central to my understanding. And, and it's also the core kind of diagram for um, treatment that I bring out in my new book. Um, but essentially, th this idea that we can map how our emotions are caused by looking at this complex of co cognitions and behaviors, I think is, is uh, just foundational. It should be foundational to our understanding of our minds. When I was a young guy, I, was br I briefly dabbled in martial arts and I, I would speak occasionally to somebody who was very experienced. I'd read books by martial arts experts and I wanted to know what their secrets were. And I thought they were going to tell me something really fancy and esoteric and technical. But I noticed that often what they would say kind of seemed banal. So they, if you looked for what they would say about what's the secret to being a really effective practitioner of karate, they would say it's getting your stance right or mm -hmm. something like that. But the way you stand, that's not the most exciting part of it. They say if you can get the stance right, that's kind of like literally the foundation of everything else. And I find that with experts in many different fields that often the wisdom that comes from their experience kind of goes over people's heads potentially because they tend to refer back to the aspect that other people overlook that's foundational, that's simple, that's basic, but upon which everything else is built. Now, in cognitive behavioral therapy, that would be the assessment stage. In mm -hmm. general medicine, diagnosis or assessment is different from treatment. Diagnosing a problem, it's not the same as treating it. But in psychotherapy, these two things overlap. Diagnosis potentially becomes part of the treatment because mm -hmm. if you really understand how your problem is functioning, that potentially changes your relationship with the problem. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes what you'll find in therapy is at the end of the assessment, when you've got your felt-tip pen out and you've drawn the diagram and the client has an aha moment and goes, I get it, I can see how this works, then if you're lucky, like they'll say, I think I've solved the problem. Like, now that I understand it, right. you know, the, the behavior change part is easy. Like, you know, I just needed to understand what was actually causing the problem. That's rare. Usually people need some coaching and training and skills as well. But in some cases, just understanding the diagram is enough for certain individuals. And I think that'll be the case with your books as well. If people look at your diagrams, they get that information, they get that understanding. For a few individuals, that might be all that they need. And for the other individuals that need the skills as well, it can that can be reassuring for them. Now, they, they can It can help motivate them to think some people just needed the basic insight. So we shouldn't skimp on that or kind of skim over it as I was saying earlier, I think a, a lot of self-improvement literature potentially does. But so I wanted to ask you as well, what are there other concepts 
or techniques that you feel that you've absorbed from from your studies of the CBT literature? Yeah, I mean, um, and and on that same note, I think I've drawn similar things from the closely related dialectical behavioral therapy. I mean, uh, I, I read one book on chain analysis within there that looks at behavioral problems, things, you know, really serious things like self-harm. And it's it's doing that same thing of trying to map out uh, the relationships between all these um, thoughts and, and beliefs and emotions and, and then ultimately these harmful behaviors. And I, I think you're absolutely right that um, these are if, if you can understand something, that's half the battle or sometimes even more. Um, so that needs to be a, a central part of it. Um, yeah. So another idea from CBT that I, I sometimes say the B part is highly neglected, but it plays a pretty central role in, in Become Who You Are, this new book. Mm-hmm. Um, the actual uh, process of behavioral activation, where you create an activity schedule for yourself um, and, you know, really do your best to stick to it where you start with, uh, you know, really basic things. If if you are, for example, really seriously depressed, you're struggling to get out of bed each day, um, creating an activity schedule that's slightly challenging for you that incorporates a little bit more mastery and pleasure and, and ultimately incorporates your values into your own behavior. So if you, um, are not getting out of bed a lot of days, right, you can, add to your activity schedule, just get out of bed and take a shower, right? If you get to where you can do that pretty well, you incorporate a little more, you know, clean your room and go on a walk. And gradually, it's my observation that these things, as they get more advanced, they trend toward uh, bringing more and more of your unique individual strengths into your daily behaviors. Um, And I I see this as a, a way of basically providing you with evidence of what you're good at when you're in a state where you have a very hard time believing that you're good at anything. Um, and behavioral activation has been found to be extremely effective. I mean, in some cases, um, more effective than cognitive restructuring. I think the reason is because uh, our actions have a kind of power over us that even our our thoughts have a hard time with. I mean, you can think something over and over and not necessarily be convinced about yourself. But if you actually prove it to yourself in a deeper sense than just your thoughts, I think that can change your beliefs in a more powerful way sometimes than uh, than just, you know, analyzing your thoughts. You, you've just walked into the territory of one of the biggest controversies in the field of modern research and psychotherapy. Right? <laughs> that has to do with Beck and the develop Beck became famous because he wrote a treatment manual in 1979 for the clinical treatment of depression. And it was believed that behavior therapy was effective for anxiety and habits and stuff, but it hadn't really cracked the problem of treating clinical depression. And then cognitive therapy seemed to hold out promise for doing that. But in doing that, he built upon an earlier behavior therapy and he combined what you're describing, the behavioral activation with cognitive restructuring and work on core beliefs or what we we sometimes call schema work today and a a composite multi-component treatment. Uh, decades later, researchers did what we call dismantling studies on Beck's approach, and they concluded that each of these components is roughly equally effective in isolation. Now, the controversy there is what Beck added to the existing behavior therapy didn't seem to make it any more effective. Like, it just provided the kind of alternative way of doing it. So 
clinicians have introduced a, an approach that's called behavioral activation, which I think is what you're referring to. We, it's part of what we call the third wave in psychotherapy. There's a traditional distinction between cognitive psychology and behavioral psychology, cognitive therapy and behavioral therapy. And usually when we talk about CBT, we're talking about something that's kind of an amalgam of these two different schools of thought and two different clinical approaches. But mm-hmm. in modern behavioral activation, it's predominantly kind of reverting back in a sense to an older style of therapy that's more focused on behavioral change. And it's simpler. It's much simpler, um, much easier to administer than Beck's uh, approach to cognitive therapy, but seems to be at least as effective and maybe effective in a, a shorter space of time. Yeah, well, I, I have a, a theory on this I'd like to get your thoughts on um, because it, it definitely integrates these different ideas and, and could explain why um, you know, behavioral therapy may be equally effective to cognitive therapy and not necessarily add to it. Um, my view has has grown to be that uh, there are two fundamental reasons why we may get depressed, um, both stemming from an absence of virtue perceived in our own behaviors. Um, and so there's w- one reason is that we are failing to pick up the signal of our own virtues. Right. And that is when our cognitions have become distorted. Right. So we have these negative beliefs preventing us from seeing what very likely everyone else around us can see, which is that we're a totally competent, lovable person with lots of strengths. Um, Right. And so cognitive restructuring will work in cases when there is that distorted set of beliefs. Well, according to this model, behavioral activation would be more effective in the event that we really aren't. Uh, bringing our unique virtues out into our behaviors. We really don't have that incorporated into our lives. So it's not so much that that we have a distorted view of ourselves. Very likely there's some distortion present as well, but it's that we actually uh, aren't seeing the evidence at all. We're not bringing it into our actions. And so our brains have no, no signal to pick up in, on there. I, this is a little bit of a murky area, but basically I fundamentally agree with you. I think... In clinical practice, you see people who are, in fact, in some cases are actually acting in accord with their core values, but they're not, uh, the way we phrase it sometimes is they're not in contact with those values or virtues. It's like they just take them for granted. And so they Mm -hmm. don't get the sense of gratification that, that seems to be protective against depression that they should be experiencing because they actually are doing the things that they value in life. So they're writing poetry, they're looking after their friends, they're being generous, they're being a good parent, but they're not kind of, they're, they're kind of not aware of it. They're not doing it with full awareness in a sense. So they, they don't really seem to get the benefit from it that other individuals might. I also think there's a connection with um, our relationship with virtue and other people. I think somebody who is more prone to recognize and praise virtue in others is potentially has more of a cognitive set to recognize and praise virtue in themselves. It, just to back up a little bit, in, in Beck's work, it used to be believed that behavioral activation was about scheduling pleasurable activities. 
So mm-hmm. we thought, depressed people don't seem like they're enjoying themselves too much. So <laughs> if we could kind of brainstorm a bunch of things that would brighten up their day, like, you know, going to the zoo or watching a movie, you know, like things that give you pleasure, like scheduling time to do that would be uh, remedial for depression, part of the therapy for depression. And the focus has shifted more towards what you're describing now, which is it's not so much about doing pleasurable activities. It's more about doing meaningful activities activities that give us a sense of fulfillment um you know it's not about stuffing your face with chocolate or something like that it's more about doing things that you can look back on and and in a sense have a sense of pride or satisfaction and so you can look in your in the mirror um and and feel a, a you know a sense of respect in a way or satisfaction like towards yourself do people who are very depressed are lacking that they lack self-worth because they don't see their own behavior as virtuous or valuable. Yeah, you, you touch on a lot of important things there. I think, for one, um, th- there are a few exercises that I recommend really heavily to people who um, read this book or who take the sort of program I built around it. Um, one of them is actually coming into contact with your own strengths. And and there are a few ways of doing that. One is, uh, you know, Martin Seligman worked on a sort of a survey that's based on his research of different cultures and the the universal virtues that we find in all of them. So if you take the virtues in action questionnaire, which is really uh, time consuming, actually, but there's a brief one as well. Um, you can sort of remind yourself of a lot of your strengths that you may have forgotten are there. Um, it, it's one of the many tools for sort of uh, reminding yourself of these things. If you're sort of convinced that your strengths don't matter or aren't really present. Uh, another is just asking people around you, asking your friends and family what they think you've always been good at, what they like about you. You'll often be surprised and it can be really enlightening to do this kind of thing. Um, But also what you touched on is uh, coming to admire others and really paying attention to your admiration for other people. I, I recommend everyone basically create a list of people that they admire in the same way that, you know, Marcus Aurelius does in the whole first book of his uh, meditations, you you map out the people in your life and historical figures, anyone you can think of that you have a lot of respect for, and you write down specifically what it is you admire about them, because you'll pretty much never meet someone that you admire everything about if you know them really well, but you will find traits that you admire, and those are the things that you really need to take note of and, and pay attention to. This is where I think, um, you know, the stoic sort of emphasis on virtues uh converges a little bit with Nietzsche's work and, and how it kind of uh, resonates with me on this front is that Nietzsche was very much uh, interested in in uh, incorporating these deep impulses of admiration that you feel for others into your own self and basically uh, engaging in this process of creative experimentation to bring out your strengths and virtues and, and come to embody the people you most admire. So this process of, you know, observing your own admiration and pride and, and these feelings that you have uh, toward yourself and others is crucial because it's very easy to ignore your values and, and pay more attention to your desires, but they're not as good a guide to actual well-being. Like many great thinkers, Nietzsche makes a point of poo-pooing the people that he's most obviously influenced by. <laughs> yep. Like he's covering his tra- tracks, like, but he, he dismisses the, the Stoics you know, really absurdly out of hand. But at the same time, the concept of the eternal recurrence is 
clearly derived from the Stoics and the Pythagoreans. And the concept of Amarfati in Nietzsche is clearly derived from the Stoics. But also the Ubermensch is very similar to the Stoic concept of the Sophos or the Sage, I think, is I think you're implying. What I'd like to ask you about next is my favorite type of cognition. Um, because I think it's every philosopher's favorite type of cognition if we had to choose. And like psychotecture, it's a bit of a neologism. I'm talking about metacognition. It's right. a particular, a special type of cognition. Uh, sometimes we talk about something called metacognitive awareness. Now, this is not something that features prominently in traditional CBT, but it's become central to what we call the new wave or the third wave of cognitive behavioral therapy. I wonder what your thoughts are about the role of metacognition in your approach to self-improvement. Yeah, metacognition is a, a cool topic, and I basically treat it as a prerequisite for a lot of this stuff. I say you, you can't repair your glasses without taking them off and looking at them. So you, you're going to have a very hard time repairing your mind and these flaws in your beliefs if you're not able to step back and actually observe them in an objective kind of non-judgmental way. Um, this is a you know core idea in a lot of the mindfulness movement that's gotten huge in the last decade. I think that's uh, very much a good thing that it's teaching people to pay a lot more attention to their mind. Um, but I, I kind of see it just as the first step, right? In the mindfulness space, it's sort of like, develop awareness and then do it some more and some more and just keep being aware. And I think that that in itself, again, can be powerful, but I think there's more work to do. I think once you actually develop that awareness and you you approach it with a, an attitude of acceptance, as is encouraged in these schools, but then you you can go in and actually make changes and restructure things. And that's where a lot of these other schools of thought come into play. Um, the, uh, the other sort of uh, CBT schools that you're referencing. I've, I've looked into a lot of these mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, uh, metacognitive therapy, right? Um, ACT as well. Um, these are all kind of bring that element of mindfulness into CBT, which I think is valuable because it seems like a certain subset of people uh, just don't have the clarity into their own thoughts needed to actually do this work and map them out and restructure them. I mean, I've I've come across people who have been like, I don't know what my thoughts are. I don't know how to like tell what I was thinking before I was in that bad mood. And so I think, you know, these mindfulness practices that center around decentering and defusion from your thoughts, right? Uh, Taking your identity and kind of building some separation between that and these things that you're thinking and viewing them just as thoughts and necessarily not necessarily as reality or truth is a essential part of the process. So metacognition, very simply for listeners, is cognition about cognition. So you can think about Santa Claus. You have you can think about cats and dogs. You know you can think about the economy. You have beliefs about all these things, but you can also have beliefs about your thinking, and you have a relationship and awareness of your thinking, which mindfulness meditation seems to enhance. But the, we also metacognitive therapy is particularly interested in the content of specific beliefs that we have about thinking as well. And that, I think, comes into into play in terms of your kind of systems approach as well. Um, For example, someone with obsessive-compulsive disorder might believe that their automatic thoughts are dangerous 
and they may believe that their automatic thoughts have the power to influence their behavior or external events. Other people might not believe those things. Mm -hmm. So it's that conviction or that belief changes the nature of their relationship, their interaction with the thoughts that they have. And metacognition also seems to play a big role in rumination and worry, which you mentioned earlier. So people that worry tend to believe that worrying is helpful. They confuse it with problem solving or preparing for adversity. So you'll often find if you ask them, we simply, we would say from zero to hundred percent, how strongly do you believe that your worrying is actually helpful? And they'll say, oh, hundred percent. Like, <laughs> and you'll say, but you know, that's you're in therapy. <laughs> like, go, oh, yeah. So I am like, um, and then, so we encourage them to, to reevaluate, uh, those beliefs because those beliefs are, are, are shaping their behavior and the, the way that they engage in thinking. That, I guess that leads on to one more question that I wanted to ask you because it's one of my favorite subjects, but I, I don't know to what extent you've engaged with it. There's nothing I love more than anger as a topic for <laughs> conversation. I believe that anger is the royal road uh, to self-improvement or dealing with anger, conceptualizing it and working with it. I think it's the elephant in the room. Uh, and self-improvement. And I think there are reasons why it's neglected by many self-improvement authors today. And I also believe that many self-improvement gurus on the internet actually exacerbate the problem of anger. And there are reasons why they're prone to do that. They make anger worse among their followers. Um, I, I think I'll shamelessly give some examples. I think, for example, Andrew Tate, very popular mm -hmm. self-improvement author, but I think he encourages his followers to become even angrier than they were to begin with. So I feel that there's something wrong here. If self-improvement is making one of our emotional problems noticeably worse. So I, I, I think we have an obligation to tackle this online head on. I like to ask uh, everyone that I speak to what their views are about anger. How do you understand the role of anger and what do you think we can do about it? Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I do deal with anger in my work and talk about it, but I sort of treat it as one of these many emotional malfunctions to be worked through. So it's interesting to me that you see it as a kind of central, really core topic to all this. Um, so what I what I sort of say about anger, I, I talk about it in this first book, um, as I'm going through all these different emotional algorithms and uh, explaining different methods that various thinkers have applied to working through them um, on anger. Uh, it, it's a good demonstration of the fact that our original programmer was natural selection and that it doesn't necessarily have our best interests in mind. Um, you know, we get angry. I think it's generally thought because uh, it, it's good for our genes that we stand up for ourselves when someone else transgresses us or slights us. And so when we were in a tribe of 150 people, you know, we, we needed to assert ourselves and getting angry or at least acting angry can prevent people from walking all over you. Um, unfortunately, there are two reasons why that can not be good for us. The first is simply that evolution isn't primarily looking out for us. Our brains were not built for us and our happiness and wisdom. They were built to get us to pass on our genes as much as possible. And so it's kind of our job as the new programmers of ourselves to work through some of those things, right? It, it might be better for us to remain in a state of, of dissatisfaction and anger and whatever if, if it causes us to be more 
genetically productive, right? Um, the second issue is the difference between the modern world and the world in which we evolved. And so there's a lot about the, the world we live in today that just doesn't resemble the one our brain was built for. And so we spend a lot of time getting angry at cars cutting us off when that has no social value, no value whatsoever, except to make us upset. Um, and so I think anger is something that we have to uh, find ways to basically reprogram away from its original intentions. And uh, if we if we use anger at all, to use it very deliberately. But uh, I think it's very possible it, it doesn't actually serve any goal as effectively as it could. You know, Lao Tzu says the best fighter is never angry yeah. in the Tao Te Ching. And I think you know, most actual fighters would agree. If you get angry, you you get distracted, you get impulsive, and uh, it doesn't actually serve. So, so what is uh, what is anger really good for if it uh, if it isn't even good for fighting? That's Seneca's position on anger as well. The Stoic position in general is that that anger people deceive them typically deceive themselves into thinking that anger could be useful. And I guess that's kind of a metacognition of again, like my angry rumination might be helping me. My revenge, maybe these revenge fantasies are helpful. They motivate <laughs> me to to do things. But right. that belief, that assumption is, is is potentially false, like simply not true and, and might be quite toxic. I think of anger as a kind of open wound or weeping sore at the heart of the self-improvement industry. Um, because if I ask somebody why they're anxious or who's responsible for their anxiety, they'll usually point towards themselves and say, I, I am. Who's responsible for your depression? They'll, they'll, they'll say, well, I am. I, I caused my depression. But if I speak to an angry person and I say, who's responsible for your anger? They'll say, that guy over there, my mm-hmm. boss at work, my wife. The, so anger is what we call an externalizing emotion. Angry people tend to think everyone else needs to be in therapy except them. And so they're what I also call therapy dodgers. Like we don't see many angry people self-referring for psychotherapy. Um, so anxious, depressed people are all over therapy, self-help, self-improvement, but the angry people are notable by their absence. Like, mm. And so their wounds are festering untreated. Um, and often they're dealing with other aspects of their problem, but not dealing with their anger. Now, to come back to what you said a moment ago about why it might be problematic in modern society, you've also mentioned the role of cognitive biases. Anger is well known to correspond with a number of cognitive biases. So to pick an easy example, people who are angry typically underestimate risk. And that would mean that they potentially place themselves and other people around them in danger more than average. So an angry person getting in a fight will drop their guard and lash out, throw haymakers and stuff. But that potentially makes them more vulnerable to being injured by their opponent. An angry soldier in an ancient battle would charge into the enemy. And in doing that, he'd expose the like the, the other uh, soldiers fighting alongside him to greater danger, potentially. So the co- these cognitive biases are a problem. Angry people are very gung-ho about trying to address problems in relationships and in society. But usually their judgment is extremely biased and they're not very good at problem solving. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, on that note of bias, I think uh, some of the best solutions for anger have to do with coming to see things more clearly on this matter. I think, um, you know, in the book, I, I talk about a couple of approaches that Seneca applies to overcoming anger. He talks about, um, 
you know, coming to uh, one to grant delay so that so that you can buy yourself more time to overcome anger. Um, delay can be really effective, even a few seconds before you react. Uh, another is he talks about uh, sort of suppress suppressing your expressions of anger, your face and your voice, and then your actual anger will come to follow. But um, in the in reading Marcus Aurelius most recently, uh, I came across a lot about. Um, kind of overcoming hatred and anger and resentment towards others. Um, you know, he basically, when he gets angry at other people, he reminds himself that, um, well, one, he says, we're, we're all basically a part of this, you know, community, this, this organism, if you will, of, of the universe functioning as a whole. And so it, it, getting angry at other people is like, you know, your arms getting angry at your legs and that kind of thing. It's not actually good for you. To get angry at them, but he also encourages like a lot of uh, empathy toward the ignorance of others. He points out that oh, these people they don't know what they're doing. They think uh, it's good for them, but actually, um, you know, they, they they just have ignorance. They're not malicious, uh, and almost everyone that frustrates you in life is just ignorant in some way and not malicious. Um, he he points out that oh, you you've made similar mistakes to them before, so don't get mad at them when. You know, they're, they're very much like you. And so all, all these, uh, I think, expressions of empathy ultimately remind us that there's a, a distortion in the way we're viewing other people when we're angry at them. Like they're some, somehow alien and malicious when really they're very similar to us and acting out of similar motives um, or ignorant motives, potentially. I think the other aspect that I'm interested in is the social dimension to it. Anger is prevalent on the internet. I don't know if you've noticed this. But <laughs> no, I haven't. Listen, I'll come across that. There's a lot of angry people on the internet. It's weird. Um, or maybe, you know, there's a, there's a reason for it. But throughout history, political orators and rhetoricians who were their buddies, their speechwriters, have specialized in making people angry um, because angry people are stupid and gullible and easily manipulated by people in power. And I think we see exactly the same thing. In ancient Athens, the political orators would whip up anger because they knew that then it would be easy to get the assembly to vote for certain measures. And today we see, I think, uh, individuals involved in politics spending quite a lot of time whipping people up into a frenzy of anger um, but in doing that, we lose our minds. The Stoics called anger temporary madness. Um, it's also a kind of stupidity in a way because of the cognitive biases that you mentioned. We, we can't think straight um, when we're angry. So we become easily manipulated and controlled. And anger is the kind of one of the, the levers that allows us to do that to other people. So I think the Stoics thought we have an obligation, a kind of social obligation, and to overcome our anger so that we're able to think more rationally um, about social virtue, about justice, about how to improve society and deal with the problems that we're facing in the communities where we live. Yeah, and and uh, not to mention, I think angry people are make for great entertainment in terms of uh, social media algorithms and news yeah. and all that. I mean, outrage uh, is one of the most clickable emotions in terms of internet engagement. So these platforms have kind of become wired around uh, fostering anger and, and bringing outrage to the top of the, the visibility algorithms. Um, you know, Twitter or X, to not uh, date myself, is uh, 
is pretty much a, it's built a culture of anger. And, and um, I mean, it, it's one of the reasons I spend virtually no time on the platform is that I've seen how it can do it to me too. I've seen how I can get into arguments with people where we're not really engaging in the ideas. I mean, I, I've even told people on social media in learning this, like, if you want to have a discussion about this, send me an email because this platform is basically going to bring out the worst in me and, and my arguments mm -hmm. if we stay here. So um, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's definitely not a good thing that we've got a, a culture of uh, encouraging anger in a way building on the internet. Of rage farming. And the yeah. news media clearly uh, specialize in that to some extent as well. Um, I wanted to, to wrap up just by asking you about your new book, which is called Become Who You Are. And uh, the first question I wanted to ask about it is what's new about your new book? What's the difference uh, between this book and the preceding one? Yeah, so uh, Become Who You Are is uh, in some ways the biggest departure I've made in my work um, because it's it's kind of zooming out from a lot of these nuts and bolts of psychotecture and these uh, individual psychological habits. And it's sort of uh, establishing a kind of a new theory um, that has to do with the way our well-being works in the first place and, and what this is all really about, why, what we should be directing our psychotectural efforts toward. And so um, it, in many ways, it draws both from ancient philosophy and a lot of research to build a theory of uh, self-esteem and well-being and kind of the origins of our virtues and values. Uh, it's a it's a pretty complex theory. So um, if we're wrapping up, it'll be hard to do it justice. But I uh, clearly I have 60,000 words to say about it, at least. So um, I could go on about it. But if you could sum uh, it up in one word. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> sure. That, that's no problem. Actually, virtue would be the word. Uh, uh -huh. But <laughs> but uh yeah, so uh, to give a little bit of a recap, it, it sort of starts off um, contemplating this counterintuitive nature of our own well-being, right? We've all observed, and certainly the Stoics and other practical philosophers have observed that uh, our well-being doesn't seem to do what we would predict based on the way we normally go about our goals, right? We set our goals toward things in the external world that will presumably make us happier if we achieve them. And then rarely is that actually the way it works. Usually, um, you know, we, we get what we wanted and we say, oh, that's good. I got a little, you know, quick spurt of enjoyment out of that. And now I'm on to the next goal. Um, and, and, you know, you can find that uh, lottery winners and paraplegics, for example, their well-being uh, goes back, you know, to the same level after a year uh, after their incidents. And there's, there's all these other examples, Daniel Gilbert uh, in Stumbling on Happiness gives a ton of these of people who had basically terrible things happen to them. And very shortly after, they're like, this is great. This is one of the best things that ever happened to me. Um, and so the question is kind of why uh, are we operating according to this map that doesn't reliably guide us toward well-being? I sort of introduced this, uh, this m visual metaphor uh, once again. Uh, and you can kind of imagine it by picturing a chessboard in front of you and and actually uh you know imagining that the x-axis corresponds to pleasure and pain and the y-axis corresponds to loss and gain and essentially by default this is the map we use to navigate our lives and so we're you know trying to maximize our pleasure but at other times we compromise pleasure in order to get long-term success 
Um, and so basically, I, I argue that the reason why uh, this doesn't actually uh, result in predictable well-being is mm-hmm. because there's a third dimension that we aren't really wired to pay attention to. Um, and you can imagine sort of extruding mountains and valleys out of this two-dimensional plane. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is what actually determines our well-being. Now, if you've studied Stoicism you know, mm-hmm. or other philosophies like this, it's, it's kind of a new way of looking at what is fundamentally a staple of perennial practical philosophy. It's the mm-hmm. idea that uh, our circumstances are basically indifferent to our well-being. Um, and uh, as, as critical as you pointed out that Nietzsche was of the Stoics, he very much aligned on this point. He uh, talked a lot about how uh, people basically focus on pleasure and comfort and all these things that aren't really what well-being is about. I mean, even though he's He's seen as being critical of compassion, but basically uh, he was critical of the idea that when we help other people, we just help them in superficial ways to make their lives easier when really it's the cultivation of character uh, that actually increases our well-being. You Mm -hmm. write about this in uh, Stoicism and the Art of Happiness pretty extensively, and that's one of the things I love about your work is it really focuses on this core idea uh, that virtue, this seemingly stuffy, preachy word, is actually at the core of our well-being. Um, and so that's what the third dimension is. When we're moving around on this two-dimensional plane of better or worse circumstances, uh, we essentially, are, our happiness is corresponding to where we are in the third dimension, even if we're not paying attention to that one. And mm-hmm. the, the most common sense way to put this is that it's the admirability that we observe in our own behavior. If, if virtue sounds kind of outdated to some people, basically, however admirable you find yourself to be, however much pride you take in the person you've become and, and the actions that you exhibit on a regular basis, that's how happy you'll actually be. And so, uh, you know, I drive this point home in a lot of ways, but it builds to a theory that I present, and it's called virtue self-signaling theory. It's actually a psychological theory that, if true, would mean that the Stoics and, and many other practical philosophy, philosophers uh, were fundamentally right about this notion that our well-being corresponds to this virtue that, that we exhibit in our behaviors. Yeah, it's no coincidence that clients with clinical depression tend to complain of feeling a sense of worthlessness. And we have to ask ourselves, well, 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 then what's the contrary? What's the opposite of that feeling of worthlessness that's almost universal in depression? It would be some kind of feeling of self-worth that that I think correlates with what you're describing here. Exactly. Yeah, depression, I mean, if you look at the kinds of thoughts that people have when they're depressed, they 100% pretty much have to do with uh, their own self-perceived virtues when they think they're uh, inadequate, unlovable, incompetent. They're really saying, I'm lacking in these virtues that are important. Um, and, and this is uh, pretty much true across the board, invariably with people who are depressed. And so depression is, is essentially the, the low valley points in this three-dimensional map, if you want to view it that way. Uh, depression is the low end of well-being. And what the ancient Greeks called eudaimonia is the peak of well-being. And it's it's what you arrive at or at least approach when you are becoming a person who is uh, who essentially embodies those virtues and values uh, that you admire in others. And so the, the more you integrate those virtues into your own lifestyle, your own behavior and character, the higher you climb in well-being, regardless of what's happening in your circumstances. And we're just reading 
uh, in my former reading, Man's Search for Meaning, who, of course, uh, was a concentration camp prisoner and who argued that basically, like, it doesn't matter how bad your circumstances get. Uh, it's all about the greatness of the soul or character. That's what your well-being is really all about. Um, and uh, so so essentially what I'm arguing this theory is that, uh, yes, that's how that's how depression works. That's how well-being works. But there's actually an evolutionary reason for it. And I think there's, you know, neurological backing as well. Um, essentially, there's a there's a theory uh, called sociometer theory that uh, was developed by Mark Leary. It says that the reason why we get why we have self esteem in the first place, the reason why humans are kind of unique in that we are constantly evaluating ourselves and we have these emotional reactions to our self evaluations that can be so powerful, uh, is because from an evolutionary standpoint. Uh, it's good for us to have a simulator of social status. So social self-esteem is essentially the fuel gauge to the fuel tank that is social esteem. And, and this to me is, you know, not only intuitively just pretty simple and satisfying, but it, it's also kind of the leading theory of self-esteem by evolutionary thinkers. And so if we do have this mechanism uh, that is basically raising and lowering our self-esteem based on our self-evaluations in order to get us to uh, do things that are better for our social standing and our mating prospects. I mean, our, our tribe that we evolved in is this complex social landscape. So it's absolutely essential from an evolutionary standpoint uh, that we don't neglect our social status, that we don't ostracize our community, um, or that we don't become ostracized by our community, that, um, that we basically maximize these things. And so what I propose is that there is a mechanism um, that is evaluating us according to our virtues all the time in our brains and determining our chemical state in our brains accordingly, actually moving us up and down the sort of well-being scale uh, based on how approvable or admirable we perceive that we are. And so if this were true, it would integrate um, a lot of these ideas in cognitive therapy, it would integrate them with ancient philosophy, and it would also integrate them with this, you know, evolutionary view of the mind that is interested in the actual functionality behind these mechanisms we, we observe in our minds. Fascinating. Well, I think that's been another great discussion. <laughs> so thanks to today's guest, Ryan A. Bush, for joining me. We hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as we did, and we enjoyed it a lot. Uh, please share the link with your friends and subscribe to the Stoicism Philosophy as a Way of Life newsletter on Substack for even more podcasts and articles about philosophy. Uh, thanks for listening. Goodbye from me, Donald Robertson, and from my guest, Ryan Bush. Bye, everyone. <laughs>